Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me for the first time this year is Phoebe Watson. Hello! It's great to have you on for our the pair of ours inaugural episode. We had uh, Eleanor Parker on last episode, obviously, but it's wonderful to have you back for our Risky Enchantment season of 2023. It's good to be back again. I'm looking forward to what we come up with this season. Yeah, and so for our first episode back, we're going to be talking about a film, which is kind of appropriate because for the last month, both Phoebe and I have managed to watch an extraordinary amount of films. I feel like I've watched... I'm coming up on the amount of films I watched last year in the first month. It's very impressive. (laughs) But the movie that we're talking about today is one that I have at least been threatening Phoebe with for at least a year now. Yeah, something like that. Because... You'd almost given up. I really had. It's a film that I love and I'm not alone in that. It's, you know, one of the most kind of generic film takes to say that you love The Shawshank Redemption. But as a friend of ours recently said, it's one of the few movies that I feel like is actually appropriately rated. I don't think it's underrated. I don't think it's overrated. I think it's appropriately rated. (laughs) Um, I think it tops the IMDb list of highest rated films on their whole platform. So that's, you know, from from submitted from users, people love this film. And I think what makes it so generally appealing is that it's 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 in a it's in a genre that's kind of missing these days, this sort of mid-budget movie. Although I will say, as much as it, it's been a success over the years, when it first released, it was a flop. And it was only after it won some Academy Awards that everyone started renting it. Nobody really saw it in the cinema. But there was a space, especially in the 90s, for kind of mid-budget movies that were usually sort of character dramas and they weren't action blockbusters or they weren't weren't big sweeping epic fantasies they were kind of a, a whole genre of movie that was just more about people and it's not a very flashy movie I think it's beautifully filmed but in a relatively understated way it's not trying to be avant-garde it's not trying to be inaccessible it's a very accessible watchable film if you are okay with some of the content which we're going to come to in a minute this is why phoebe refused to watch it for so long yeah there is a reason why i found it a hard watch yeah i don't know i just find it not a hard watch at all because i just think it's so beautiful but i just think it's a wonderful movie and in some ways it's kind of a shame i don't see a lot of movies in that genre. There are other great movies that are coming out now, but yeah, it's somewhat of a lost genre now. But it is, if you haven't seen it, we're going to be giving a description of it. It's been out since the 90s, <laughs> like I said. So still, spoiler alert. Spoiler but... alert, it's a very famous movie. I also think, I know the first, there's essentially a twist at the end, and I know that my dad definitely showed me the end half hour of the movie which includes the twist before I ever saw any of the earlier stuff so if that tells you anything it doesn't ruin the movie to know where it's going um but yeah we just want to flag that there is a twist at the end so yeah spoiler alert yeah and like I said it is at least to me a hard watch as long-time listeners of the podcast may know I don't deal very well with violent movies and this movie has a fair bit of violence 
in it. It's not like dwelt on in a like really close up graphic way, but there's still quite a few upsetting dark incidents. And like it's set in a prison, so that in itself also makes it quite a hard watch. So yeah, it's definitely not so violent that I would never ever watch it again, but it's one of those movies that I'll still have to psych myself up to, to watch ever again, if that kind of gives you a feel for at least yeah. where the violence level is. Yeah, absolutely. Like, in some ways, I find it hard to think of it as a violent or dark movie, just because I think what the movie does is bring through a strain of hope and triumph, especially towards the end, mm-hmm. that at least when I'm thinking back on it, so dominates my experience of the film that it makes a lot of those darker moments a lot more bearable just because even like on your first viewing even if you don't know where the kind of the story is going I still think that there is a sense of human decency throughout the whole movie yeah absolutely um in a way that yeah I think sometimes violence in movies now doesn't necessarily hold on to that it's more I feel like there's more nihilism to a lot of the violence in you know at least in serious drama movies that are violence you know you've got your comic book movies that are kind of big you know, they're destroying a city, but let's not think about how many millions of lives will be lost or whatever it is. But on the flip side, you've got these kind of darker dramas that come out now that are very intent on showing the kind of darker side of the human psyche. And you're right, it's absolutely in the Shawshank Redemption, but I just feel like the sensibility of the movie has a much more humane element to it. Yeah, it is still a very hopeful movie. And like we're going to talk about the main character being a Christ-like figure. Mm-hmm. Like It still feels very hopeful. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't take away from the darkness of it. Yeah. I would, like, I would rank The Passion of the Christ as, again, a, a hopeful movie. <laughs> it's far more violent. Like, Shawshank is not as violent as The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> I will say that. <laughs> um, but, but that would be, much for me, a much harder rewatch mm. than Shawshank. And yet they're still, they both still carry those veins of hope and they say things that are worth listening to Yeah, that make them worth watching even though they're hard. Yeah. And there's also, we're going to dive into the exact um, plot of the movie now in a minute. But as we've said, it is a movie about a man being sent to prison and it is about prisoners and the men in these prisons. And while we're going to definitely delve into that theme, I do just want to flag, I just think it's really important that the film does to a great degree humanize the prisoners and in fact it was it was sort of detracted at least from some critics at the time for making the prisoners sort of too nice like the the prisoners are nice and the guards are awful i i think that's a kind of unfair reading i think it does represent these as realistic men and i you, you can believe that they have done crimes to get them and violent crimes to get them into this prison um but it doesn't make them into monsters it's not you know there's a there's a, a couple of them in it that are are very threatening and evil but for the most part they are just men trying to live out their lives in this prison yeah it toes that very fine line between still representing some of the darker sides of prisoners in prison life mm-hmm. while still showing them as human which is just really important Yeah, and I think it's a good moment, especially from a Catholic perspective, to reflect on the fact that among the corporal works of mercy is to visit the imprisoned. It is really important for us to push against what prisons are kind of designed to do, which is put people out of your mind, that you don't have to think about them. Um, It is 
a, it is something that Catholics need to keep in mind as part of their society. And it's a very complex political and social topic. And that's kind of not the purview of this podcast. And so I was I, I was thinking about whether it was irresponsible of me to talk about the themes and how they apply to our lives in talking about Shawshank without actually delving into incarceration systems. But I really am not well versed enough. <laughs> and I, I, I do encourage people to look into more I, I would also feel very strongly to remember the different types of incarceration that are happening both, you know, far away, maybe in other countries, but also at home in Ireland. We have something called direct provision, which is for nominally for refugees. I don't think it is at all appropriate for its use. I think it's very dehumanizing. Uh, so to remember that prison can look different for a lot of different people and also to keep an eye out for people who do great reporting on it. I know we're talking from Ireland and so you know, America to us is like a whole different thing. But I've been very moved by some of the articles I've read by Elizabeth Brunig, specifically on people undergoing the death penalty and the families of people undergoing the death penalty. And whether you, whatever feelings you have about it, I think it's very important to grapple with the reality of it. And is something that like I said, is very easy to put out of your mind. That's where bad people go and I'm a good person, so I don't need to think about it ever. But that it is part of our Christian calling to to not allow that to happen. And just as much from a pro-life point of view, when we say we represent the rights of people who we, you can't see in the, in the case of in the womb, um, it can also be true that we are supposed to represent the rights of people who we can't see because they are incarcerated, rightly or wrongly. <laughs> but yeah, I just think it's important to... And, you know, any Hollywood movie is going to, I don't know, either glamorize or, uh, I guess, overly um, like make monstrous the stories of being in prison. But I still think it is worth in, like, engaging with this movie and, and showing how it humanizes the characters in the Shawshank prison. But I think the some of the themes that we're going to be pulling out is also how easy it is to become a prisoner of your own life, of your own habits, of your own circumstances. And that, um, you know, one of the things that we have in common with all of our, our mankind, no matter where they are, is that we all have these struggles of feeling boxed in and feeling a prisoner. And so even like regardless of our own situations, we can find common ground with the people, with the characters of this story. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of very quotable things that mm -hmm. we can pull out of it that are just great mottos to apply to our own lives as well. Mm -hmm. And even to think about it in the term in terms of I was really thinking about it in terms of work, which mm. is in some way like in some ways can feel like a prison a voluntary one and a very important one, but they talk a lot about institutionalization and that can be quite a part of our work and just our society in general that we get trapped in our own lives in a way mm -hmm. that this film shows us how we can dehumanize ourselves and others in yeah. that yeah absolutely and so to go into the actual plot of the film it was based on i think it's a short story or maybe a novella by stephen king which i haven't read it feels a little bit like the godfather in which people it's not that people say you can't read the source material but there's not that many people arguing this is one of the few cases where people can kind of just say 
the movie is where it's at. You don't need to worry so much about the, the book that inspired it. But it's uh, it's set in, it begins in the 1940s and it is about a character called Andy Dufresne who we begin with the at the start of the movie where he is sitting in his car drunk loading up a revolver and he kind of stumbles out of the car and the scene ends and then the next thing we know is that he's in the in court and he's been sentenced to two life sentences for killing his wife and his wife's lover and he's been accused like not only of being a killer but quite cold-hearted there's like a, a quite a lot of emphasis put on his very aloof nature and he he's maintaining his innocence he says that he he didn't do it he was feeling like he might shoot them but he threw the gun into the river when he started sobering up a bit and just went home and you know it's it's just a a, a complete coincidence that they happened to be murdered that night but he's not believed and he is sent to prison where he goes to Shawshank prison and from there he has to grapple with prison life and there's a lot of different elements to that whether it's kind of other predatory prisoners or whether it's just like the manual labor of being in prison. The brutality of the guards. Yeah, and that's established very quickly on their first night. One of the prisoners is crying and wanting to go home and he essentially gets beaten to death by one of the guards. Um, So we know this is a genuinely horrific place to try and exist. And we're also getting an insight into some of the other prisoners who will become Andy's friend. Most importantly, there's a character called Red. He's famously portrayed by Morgan Freeman. This was kind of the the role that brought Morgan Freeman to prominence and all of the voiceovers that he now does really stem from this because he, he, uh, in the film, he has a voiceover, but it's one of the few that I feel like sometimes voiceovers are very kind of ham-fisted, whereas this is almost like insertions of poetry into the story. It's more like reflections rather than telling you what's happening. And yeah, Red is is known in the prison as the the guy who can get things. So if you if you want, you know, a pl- pack of playing cards, a stick of gum, cigarettes, like you ask him and he gets it, it smuggled into the prison. And so him and Andy become friends. It actually starts with Andy asking for a little rock hammer <laughs> to to so that he can make polish like little make chess figures in the end and he indulges in this like hobby of geology while in the prison and this is all the kinds of seeds of Andy being this like slightly different character to everyone else and looking beyond the the kind of surface level and bringing in elements of the world that they're not even thinking about at one point he manages to bring in like records and music and he plays it over the the intercom system and everyone can hear it and he ends up getting getting um punished in solitary confinement for doing this but yeah there's this sense of andy being set apart in some way yeah there's a great sense that he's still living a different life to the rest of the prisoners even Mm -hmm. though he's on the surface, doing the exact same things as them. Yeah. And yeah, that rock hammer is really interesting. It's only a seven-inch tool. Yeah. It's Um, it's not a large, large thing. Yeah, if you're imagining a pickaxe, please minimise it down to something, like, very, very small. Like a hammer. Yeah. It's like a small hammer. Yeah, a very small hammer. And yeah, there's just, there, there is just something about him and he maintains his innocence, although there is this sense in Shawshank, there's this joke that everyone's innocent, that's yeah. it, that the lawyer like got, got their case wrong and they shouldn't be here. So it's kind of a running joke. But 
Andy is the one who has a slightly different sense about him. And he's also, yeah, the one who holds on to hope. And that's the theme mm, that we're going to yeah. com- explore in, in depth is that he insists that there has to be hope. And we see the kind of impact of a lack of hope. There's a, an elderly character who finally gets paroled out and he can't, he, ha- he hasn't been in society for decades and decades and decades and he just can't cope now that he's an old man trying to earn some money and and live a life and he's just like Phoebe you mentioned being institutionalized and he he ends up killing himself and so there's this theme of like the knife edge between how do you maintain hope in such a hopeless place and what what does like looking for a future look like (laughs) Um, and yeah there's there's this sense that Andy is really practically trying to improve, using hope to improve the situation that he's in. He's writing letters to get books donated for a library and he writes one a week for, I think, like six years and they finally donate some books and he's like, great, now I'll write two letters a week. <laughs> yeah. And so they get a whole library complex and he starts, there's a new um, prisoner that's come to him and he starts teaching him how to to pass his exams and he's doing this for a lot of other characters and at the same time he's also kind of one of the reasons he's been allowed to do this is is that because in his previous life he was a banker and so he started doing the taxes and the financial management both for the guards and then eventually the warden of the prison who is actually smuggling money and and doing all of these nefarious things and so he's got these two hands where he's actually he makes the point of he had to become he had to go to prison to become a criminal that he's actually helping the warden do all of these these things and working for him in a financial capacity while at the same time building up the the other prisoners through his library and through his help and all of these uh, all of these other elements yeah there's a real sense that he uses what he gets from his work with the guards and like cozying up to them in a sense yeah to benefit the other prisoners and not to like keep those luxuries for himself absolutely because the very first one is that they're tarring a roof and he hears one of the guards talking about how he's going to get um inherit some money but it's all going to get taxed and so he's not actually going to inherit very much and so he is brave enough to approach this guard for which he almost gets thrown off the roof of the building and says that like i can help you with this and this results in them him managing to organize to get beers for his his fellow prisoners while they're tarring the roof but he doesn't take the beer he says he he gave it up <laughs> kind of both in a in a sort of a joke but a nod to this very start of the film that he was drinking when he was contemplating killing his wife and so um, yeah, like you said, it's really important. He's not about keeping it for himself. It's not about amassing power or anything like that. It's much more sincere than that. But anyway, towards the end of the film, he realized the warden has actually quashed a chance that Andy has to prove his innocence, that he has... It's heartbreaking. He, he does a very evil act to erase any chance of um, Andy being released because, of course, he can't let Andy be released because he knows all of these secrets. And that's when we find out that for many, many years, uh, Andy has actually been planning an escape. He has been tunneling through the walls with his little rock hammer and he escapes and he goes to this place that he's spoken of to to Red, which is in Mexico. It's on the Pacific. And it's it's such a moment of triumph. It's such a moment of like joy when you're watching it to see him finally get the justice he deserves and to 
Yeah, to... he takes all of the warden's money That's and it. like gets a newspaper article printed, like uncovering all of the secrets of what's been happening yeah. with the warden at Shawshank mm-hmm. and hightails it out of the country. <laughs> and then what could have been the natural end to the, the film actually continues on and offers a further step of hope. Mm. So Red, his, his friend who used to help him get all of these bits and pieces, it, he's a very interesting character because he's the only one in the prison who owns his guilt he knows he, he doesn't pretend he was innocent he says i'm in for murder and i'm uh, the, the only guilty man in shawshank and through his friendship with andy he has been able to regain hope and so when he's finally paroled whereas we had there's a very obvious parallel with the other elderly man who brooks who gets paroled earlier in the film but instead of succumbing to despair um Andy has actually left him the tools to come join him in the Pacific. And it's such a beautiful end. It ends with Morgan Freeman's voiceover of, I hope, I hope, I hope, as him and Andy embrace on the beach. And it is honestly... It's beautiful. <laughs> I know we've done quite an extensive description of the plot. You could almost sum it up in, man goes to prison, he makes friends, he escapes at the end. But it is such a worthwhile story to invest in. It's beautiful and it's just an amazing film. Obviously, I'm recommending everyone to watch it. But yeah, I I think it's such a profound movie. And I think one of the things we're going to go into here is how it actually manages to embrace a lot of Christian imagery and Christian references. Some of them are explicit in the the film. There's a lot of references. There's a Bible, which we'll go into, um, and Bible quotes. But I think it's also telling, we're going to draw out some of the Christian symbolism, but Phoebe, you were making the point that I, I don't think it would be wrong to suggest that this is, quote, a Christian movie in the sense that it was made by Christians for some Christian purpose. It's not, it is a secular movie, and yet it is so in tune with the symbolism that it's using that, like not, I don't want to say by accident, but by the very nature of trying to tell a true story is actually drawing on something very close to the Christian message. Yeah, because it's so steeped in that hope and that story of redemption and an innocent man where everybody else is guilty. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many Christ-like representations. Mm-hmm. We, but I still think we would be remiss to say that he's, like, a blanket Christ figure and they intended him as a Christ figure entirely. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, also, he's not in that he has a sense of his own guilt, which makes him different from Christ. Yeah. In, a sense, in that he, we find out towards the end of the movie, he has been holding himself to blame for the fact that his wife was there with her lover because of how he neglected her. Mm-hmm. And th- so there's that kind of sense of he's not just a straight cut and paste innocent man redeeming Shawshank. Yeah. But it is still a very integral part of the story. Yeah, and I think that's key. And it's also like... This is exactly why I think it is such a good movie, which is that I feel like there's such a tendency with quote-unquote Christian movies to, like, point to a character and go, well, we're going to make him Christ. Cut and paste. Yeah, exactly. And that's not actually good storytelling. Like, you don't need Andy to be, quote, without sin in order for him to be a Christ-like figure. And I think that's where a lot of that kind of storytelling goes wrong, that it's trying too much to just 
do a parable for Christ rather than just tell a story that this is the like the Shawshank Redemption is so much a film about hope and it's not even subtle about it it says it very explicitly like it is very clear that this is what it wants to be about and it's got the word redemption in the title like it's got all of these themes and yet it isn't didactic you are immersed into the world it's not just about hitting you around the head with and this is what you should think it's just you're just rooting for the characters that are in it because they feel real and you want to see them redeemed yeah, and there's even a sense that some of the Christian imagery they're using to tell a story is more cultural than um, because they're intentionally using it for what we would take it as. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not still there and worth talking about. Yeah, and so I want to point out there's a, an excellent video, it's quite an old one now from Bishop Barron, where he highlights some of the ways in which Andy is a Christ-like figure. And there's a couple of other uh, videos on, on YouTube and articles that we've, we've gone through for this, this episode. But yeah, some of the, the great kind of Christ-like moments, um, mm. are, like we've already mentioned, there's the scene on the roof where he manages to get his friends beers. And it's, it, you know, when you see it with the lens of the wedding feast of Cana, it makes so much sense. Mind blown. <laughs> like it's so great and there was another reference to like his to his friend red being a a, like a saint peter character to you know the right hand man that like yeah is is and it's such a great concept i think of the only innocent man in shawshank like actually innocent man in shawshank befriends the only guilty man in shawshank that like the two of them are friends because they're not actually denying their reality yeah they have a genuineness about them that is lacking from many of the other characters even the like sort of good ones yeah absolutely and like a lot like i said at the very start a lot of the characters are very likable but yeah there's an authenticness to red and andy that you know you can see why they became friends and just going back to that scene where he's gotten them the beers on the roof, there's mm. a beautiful quote there that says, he made us feel like free men again. That mm. um, just by that simple act of them being allowed to sit down and have a beer on yeah. a hot day, that he has given them a sense of freedom that being out in the open away from the prison hasn't given them. Yeah, um, I think there's some really beautiful moments like that where he sort of breaks into their prison reality and shows them a wider world. Yeah, absolutely. And so much of it is about that showing what feels like glimpses of heaven. And in a weird way is actually, you know, it's glimpses of the outside world, but it is also heaven in a way that it is a world beyond their prison walls that they've allowed themselves to kind of forget about. As I mentioned, there's a scene in which he, you know, among the first things that he gets for this library is some records with classical music on them. And he like, he finds himself in the office and he locks the door and he puts the music on the intercom. And it is, it's, it's Mozart and it's the, it's the, I think it's the the marriage of Figaro. And it's three women singing in Italian and like all of these sort of like somewhat burly prisoners like looking up at these women singing but it does have a huge impact on them and you know the narration that red 
gives is, I have no idea to these days what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words. It makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a grey place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage, made those walls dissolve away, and for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. So once again, we've got that that sense of of freeing, of making them more human. And it's beautiful because it's not just in those like glimpses and like moments that he brings it in, but he also does it in in his library, which he uses to help them get their the other prisoners their high school diplomas and helps them get back on their feet like with the idea that we want them to leave this prison and we want them to have a future that he sees that as important whereas so much of the system was just about letting them sit there and rot yeah that he gives them a sense of hope and purpose that maybe they can get out of here and start forming a life themselves again yeah Uh, that they are worth more than what the prison guards think they're worth yeah and that they have some of the practical tools on how to do that. Yeah. Uh, and there's a beautiful line about that Andy says about his um, why he played Mozart and the, the two weeks he'd done in solitary. He says, I had Mr. Mozart to keep me company. It was here, and he, tap, he gestures to his head and his heart, and in here. That's the beauty of music. They can't get that from you. Haven't you ever felt that way about music? Here's where it makes the most sense. You need it so we don't forget that there are places in the world that aren't made out of stone, that there's something, there's something inside that they can't get to, that they can't touch. It's yours. Red asks, what are you talking about? And Annie replies, hope. Mm. And Red's reaction to that is actually to say, hope, let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. You'd better get used to that idea. And Andy says, like Brooks did, referencing their their friend who killed himself. And I think that's the balance because from Red's point of view, hope is a useless thing because there is nothing to hope for. And in a sense, hope can drive you crazy if you, you know, you're hoping for something and it's just not happening. You want to get free and you're still here. Like Red's there for like 40 years. You can see how that can that can disturb you. But on the flip side, what Andy is saying is, is that it's not just a madman's idea of hope. It's not just clouds in the sky. He's about both maintaining hope and also the practical steps to both maintain it and act on it. Yeah, that it's an act of hope that is constantly acted on. Yeah. That we've, as we find out towards the end, he is tunneling his way through the wall to get out of prison. Yeah. An endeavour of 19 years of chiselling. Yeah, it's and it's amazing. And I think what's also interesting that I really note is that from what I can see, if you're watching it multiple times, you kind of realise that Andy's escape, his escape route is actually in place for what must be like at least longer than he... Like he doesn't just succeed in making this tunnel and then he leaves he actually kind of waits because at the time he's teaching a young prisoner and helping him to read and write and helping him again to get his uh, his certificates and his education and it's only when that quest 
has an end and a somewhat futile end, it's only then that he decides, now I'm going to go. And it coincides with the end of hope for him to ever get out by legal means, when the warden takes it into his own hands to, to stop any chance of that happening. That like once both of those avenues of both doing anything constructive in the prison and having a hope of actually maintaining his innocence publicly are brought to an end that he escapes and I think it's not what I'm not saying is that like that that was the only way he'd be justified he was always innocent and so in some level he was always justified in escaping but I think it's important that hope comes in many ways for him that he's not just focused on his own benefit but the benefit of seeing other people succeed, the benefit of having justice done publicly, the benefit of having somebody else brought to justice for the crime who actually did it. That- yeah, that his hope has said that he ought to try the legal means, even if it would have meant him being there for far longer. Mm-hmm. But if there had been hope on that legal means, he wouldn't have escaped. Maybe not. Uh, maybe yeah. not. He may have waited it out to try and get his name clean. Yeah. Because then there was still hope. And even if if his tunnel had been found and he'd been caught, you still think, get the sense he would have had hope mm-hmm. in that there was things that he was doing in the library, there was things he was doing for the prisoners around him mm-hmm. that that hope was still unquenchable. Yeah, but it's only in after both of those things happening that he's actually driven to a point which seems like despair mm. because nobody knows about his tunnel, nobody knows about this plan. and so Including the, the Watcher, especially if you haven't seen it for the first time. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, very, it's a very clever movie in that it doesn't do that kind of shady thing of like withholding the information you would need to know what was happening. It actually presents it to you very obviously, but it just brings you down other paths so that you kind of just forget about it. You're just doing you're looking at other things you you know and so it it is a wonderful revelation when it happens and he has these big posters of like pinup girls or like the 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 starlets of the day that he's been asking red to to bring in and you you think it's just a very basic level distraction (laughs) but what it is is hiding this hole that he's he's been digging and it's such a powerful escape because it's not just a hole that he digs and he's on the outside it is one that he absolutely has to suffer through. He essentially has to crawl through the sewage pipe for, uh, I think, the length of five football fields. 500 is, yards. Yeah, yeah. it is, uh, you know, a, an extraordinary feat. Extremely dangerous. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And he comes out in the river at the end and it's just those people who've referenced it obviously as being a kind of baptism. You know, he's in the, the waters, he's washed clean of his of the, the, the sins or the stench of, of Shawshank. It's beautiful. It's, it's so beautiful and it's so clever because there's so many ways in which the film kind of subverts the expectations of of the kind of references that it's making. So the warden, who's definitely kind of the villain of the piece, he is obviously, you know, it's almost a trope of movies now, but the the Bible bashing hypocrite who is all about his religiosity and but doesn't live a virtuous life. But he, he gives all of the, the prisoners a Bible each. And uh, that's where Andy has been hiding his rock hammer. He's cut. Oh, he's cut the shape of the rock hammer into the Bible, and that's so that he just has it in his hand whenever his um his room gets searched. But it's very interesting because there's an interaction they have at one time when his room is being searched, where the warden asks him for, like, what is your favorite Bible quote, and um he talks about 
you know, keep guard for you, you do not know when the master of the house is coming. And the warden replies with a relatively kind of like, oh, I prefer I am the light of the world, which is in some ways quite a generic in given the circumstance. But there's a very much a sense of that, like at the at the time when you're watching it, you think, oh, Andy's referencing, I mean, my, my room is being tossed for contraband. You don't know when the master of the house is coming. It feels very on the nose. But there's a deeper sense in which Andy is the master of the house. He's the one who brings it all tumbling down. And like we said, he is the Christ figure who in that in that Bible quote is referenced as the master of the house, that he's actually the one who comes with justice. Yeah, he's the one who goes through that like death arc mm-hmm. and out through the sewer in a form of rebirth uh, like mm. um to then be able to like uncover all of those and there's these massive newspaper headlines and yeah um yeah yeah the warden suddenly dealing with this storm on his hands yeah because actually andy is the one who's in charge he yeah. is the master uh, it's it's just it's very cleverly done. I think some people there's a very obvious thing to say that like um, you know when they're given the Bible they're told salvation lies within and there's a very literal reading which is like oh Andy's just rejecting the Bible and looking to practical means and he like cuts out the shape of the rock hammer. But I I actually push back on that. I don't think it's right. I think it's telling that he can quote the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I also think it's telling that he starts cutting into the Bible for the shape of the rock hammer on the page that opens for Exodus, that, you know, there is this sense in which it is a a biblical level of um, emancipation, that, you know, you're taking the Israelites and setting them free, that there is a sense of injustice in their slavery and injustice in his in his uh, imprisonment. And it kind of reminds me of that Tolkien quote of saying um, that fantasy is escapist and that's its glory. If a soldier is imprisoned by the enemy, don't we consider it his duty to escape? If we value the freedom of mind and soul, if we're partisans of liberty, then it's our plain duty to escape and to take as many people with us as we can. And that is so pertinent to Shawshank it's not a fantasy story but it is fiction but it is such a powerful message of hope and not only does Andy escape but like Tolkien is saying there he takes someone with him he manages to bring Red with him and it's so I mean yeah not in the actual escape route but he's left behind enough clues for Red yeah but more yeah. importantly, he's also left behind hope yeah. for Red, that he's actually managed to instill Red with the ability to hope for more. And there was there was a quote from, there was a, a, a video I watched called the, the Hidden Meaning of the Shawshank Redemption, where it's talking about there's a series of three parole hearings that Red has, and he's rejected from the first two, and then he's released in the, the uh Third, but in the first two, he's sort of taking the party line and being like, "Oh yes, I'm, uh, you know, I'm no danger to society, and I can re-enter society, and like, I'm very sorry for what I did. I've been rehabilitated. That's the one. And <laughs> and by the last one, he kind of says, "I don't know what that means because I don't think you know what that means. You're just a guy in a suit, and I am done playing this game. And that's when he's finally freed. But in this this quote from this video, I've referenced. It starts talking about the, the, the second time he's in the parole hearing and it says in the second one he says no danger to society here not because he's a better man but because like Brooks he no longer looks forward to the outside world but it's Andy's miraculous escape and life on the outside that redeems Red 
In his final hearing, Red at last speaks like a free man. He no longer cares whether he remains or goes, whether he lives or dies. The world outside no longer concerns him. Because Andy lives, he can now face whatever the future holds. So when his time of release does come, it's his hope in Andy that propels him beyond Brooks's fate to a life in a world beyond Shawshank. It is obvious now why Red finds Andy working the wood of a fishing boat all before an eternal sea. I love that last reference. Yeah, it's wonderful. And like I said, and I love the music score, it's by Thomas Newman. And I just think that ending with the repeated lines, it kind of builds up to it. He says he's, you know... In some ways, the film shows us somewhat beyond what he's um, narrating. From the narrator's point of view, he's sort of planning out his journey and the visuals are showing us on his journey. He says that, you know, he's on the bus and he's got the excitement. He actually says that only a free man can feel. Mm. And then he says, I hope the Pacific will be as blue as I think it will be. I hope I will see my friend again. I hope to take him by the hand. I hope... And it's such a beautiful message that, like, I saw someone say, oh, it's, you know, it's a very basic, like, oh, hope. I'm like, it's so hard to actually convey that level of hope. The simplest things are the hardest to understand. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And it's, it is so easy to live a very hopeless life. And that doesn't necessarily always manifest as, like, extreme depression or extreme degraded surroundings but it can just be in the like quietness of your soul that you you don't feel that sense of hope and that's one of the things that Andy so firmly believes in and firmly enacts yeah there's a beautiful um passage about how he like stands out from everyone else I think we've touched on it already but it says um again the voiceover Um, says, I could see why some of the boys took him for snobby. He had a quiet way about him, a walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. He strolled like a man in a park without a care or worry in the world, like he had on an invisible coat that would shield him from this place. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say I liked Andy from the start. Mm, It's so beautiful and they film it so well. It's not that he's doing anything in particularly like noticeable but yeah the 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 actor tim robbins does a great job there's a lot of talk about like a funny little smile that he has there's a smile there's a walk that is just different to everyone around him and it is like like it says like an invisible coat that's on him like a man in a park that he's not burdened by the in some ways, the expectations of the place that he's currently in. Yeah, that he won't succumb to them as well. Mm-hmm. I think, like, for us as Christians particularly, that's such an important reminder that we're supposed to walk with hope in this world. Yeah. And that that should look a little bit different. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that there is a sense in which drawing the transcendent into your life is where we maintain that kind of hope and so you know for Andy's case he's taking stuff that's on the outside of the prison and bringing it in but the stuff that's on the outside of the prison that he's bringing in in many ways is often even beyond just the normal mundane in that like it's books it's music it's practical tools for learning it's all of these things and I think that's one of the themes that I love from the film which is that Andy has this kind of rich inner life 
that helps protect him from the sort of ravages of the prison. Uh, and he doesn't relinquish it. We had the quote before, but I think it's it bears repeating, you know, that you need something inside of you. You need it so we don't forget that there are places in the world that aren't made of stone, that there's something inside that they can't get to, that they can't touch. It's yours. And I think that is such an important thing to remember for all of us, that there is actually a building up of our inner lives, of our our world of prayer, especially yeah. from a Catholic point of view, that our, our interaction with the sacraments and also our prayer life, that all of these things create a sense of an inner world that maintains us no matter what's happening on the outside. And I think in many ways, I feel like that's something that education doesn't really focus on anymore. I'm not saying it's not important to learn practical things in education. Of course it is. But that there is an element of education that is also about building up the your inner life and that it actually arms you for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I think we have to be careful that that's still a different and less important thing to the life of prayer and like the cultivation of faith, hope and love. And mm-hmm. um, like that life as a Christian is the most important. Yeah. But that in a more human level, there's also yeah, this intellectual inner life that Andy has that gives him ballast against the world. Yeah. Um, did you want to read out the quote? Yeah, well there was a couple of ones that I pulled out and one is in particular actually about something I think I've spoken about on this podcast before. In fact, I'm sure I have, but I I still feel quite strongly about it, which is, and again, it's something that gets a little bit of a hard rep these days, uh, which is memorizing things, knowing things. You've definitely spoken about it before. (laughs) (laughs) Which is learning bits and pieces by heart. And like, don't get me wrong. I know we're all busy people. I, just as much as anyone, I, you know, I'm not sitting around with endless time learning Shakespeare monologues. (laughs) But that... I'm really grateful that, especially when I was growing up, that, you know, when you're a kid, you actually kind of have time for some of those things, that when I was that age, I was educated in a way that gave me some of these quotes and some of these references that that I can still draw on as an adult. And then as an adult, continuing to at least try and, and capture fragments of it to keep it in my mind. And I do think that there is something different in having it by heart that allows you to integrate it into your life in a way that just, I know it's on your phone, I know that, but that doesn't mean it's in your heart or in your head. And, you know, you can take it very extreme. There's an example of, uh, there's an article I'm referencing from The Spectator, um, which is talking about, there's a a man called Terry Waite who was uh, imprisoned in Lebanon and he was handcuffed, I think, to a radiator at one point and all of these awful things. And, you know, he had the opening lines of uh, one of the four quartets, which he recited to himself. And, you know, that's obviously a very extreme situation. Of course, he, you know, he doesn't have an ability to reference a book or the internet or anything like that. And I'm not saying that you need to live your life in case somebody takes away all of your modes of... um, of reading, but I do think that what that is is a very dramatic example of how something works in a much smaller way in your day-to-day life, which is that it, it consoles you when you have have it as a reference that when you're faced with an emotion or a situation or even an image that you see in nature or something around you, that when it evokes great words and great descriptions of those things, actually 
allows you to enter into those situations more or gives gives you deeper meaning from them. Yeah, and that also having it come to your mind is a very different thing to being like, oh, I'll go look that up. Yeah. You wouldn't think to look it up at yeah. the time. It has to come out of the backs of your mind Yeah. To, um, at the time when it's needed. Yeah, and there's a, a slightly long quote from this article from The Spectator that I'm referencing here, but it says, In 1940, scholar and essayist George Steiner, at the time 11 years old, escaped the Nazi encroachment of France. As the hateful menace drew ever nearer, he recalled that one of the things my father taught me was always have your bags packed. This meant more than your physical possessions. It spoke acutely to the preservation of the stories and memories, the beliefs and morals that make up who you are. This is why we must memorise. Steiner would, would explain, and here he's quoting Steiner, most of present schooling is organised amnesia. It takes away the arts of remembrance. It leaves people with very little inner ballast. Now that's all fine when all is going well. When all is going well and you're beautiful, young and earning a lot, then you can sail very lightly before the wind. Be careful. When things start going wrong, health, loneliness, the most natural things, what you carry inside, they can't take away from you. Put luggage inside. That's the only way I can express it. So that when the wind starts blowing very hard, you have ballast. We are taking that away from our young and leaving them very often tremendously empty. And there's in the film a beautiful moment where they're talking about music. I think it's in the section where they're talking about Andy's playing of the music through the intercom. And Red mentions that he used to play harmonica and... Andy asks, like, why don't you anymore? And and Red says, it didn't make any sense in here. And Andy insists that this is where it makes the most sense, you know? And Andy actually goes and manages to get him a harmonica, which we only see him ever, like, blow one note into. But there is that sense of, yeah, that he was discarding the things that it would have actually perhaps brought him more comfort and kept him linked to his former self and that didn't cut him off from the outside world. Yeah, that he'd almost actively cut himself off further from the world than he already was. Yeah. Um, and neglected to cultivate part of who he was made to be. Mm, yeah. Uh, which I think is a really important thing to think about when we talk about this intellectual ballast because mm. it's not like that can ever be a substitute for faith. No. But that for at least some of us, it is part of who we're called to be in the Lord mm. and that we are called to cultivate. Yeah. And that it, I think to me, the two, at least in the movie, the two things are like the inner life and the hope are inextricably linked. That Yeah, they're entirely intertwined. Yeah. yeah. And that, you know, there's a great quote from Auden here, which is choice of attention to pay attention to this and ignore that is to the inner life what choice of action is to the outer. In both cases, a man is responsible for his choice and must accept the consequences, whatever they may be. And Andy is choosing to pay attention to the things that he loves. He's choosing to keep up his love of chess. He's choosing to keep up his love of geology. And then to go outwards and choosing to invest in the relationships around him. That's such an important quote for this day and age as well, because I think now more than ever, like our active choices of what we do 
like choices of action and our choice of what we're paying attention to are almost the same because we're mm. clicking on something on our phone that's mm. engaging our mind yeah and that question of yeah what are you paying attention to yeah and where are you building up those things and cultivating your cultivating your life really yeah absolutely and that in choosing to to build up this inner life he maintains his ability to keep hoping because he's not restricting himself to just the mundanity of the world that he's in. And we're very sorry for the passing of Pope Benedict XVI, but, you know, it's such a, such a great man. But he has such a wonderfully simple quote, which is that one who has hope lives differently. And that yeah. so sums up Andy. He has hope and he lives differently. Yeah. And just to go back to what you were saying about him, like cultivating his geology and his relationships, Mm. I think that's also a really important thing that he's not just cultivating his tunnel. Mm. He's not just cultivating his way out. Yeah. Um, Like, obviously, the tunnel is an important part of his expression of hope Mm -hmm. that he is trying to find a way out of this place. Yeah. But he's also, yeah, like building up other things with that yeah and that it's almost not even the most important thing yeah. now it becomes more important as as the story goes on to him but that yeah that at the same time he was investing and very emphatically investing in relationship as well that yeah. like he he redeems like you were saying he does actually feel a sense of guilt about how closed off and how cold he was and he's never totally open he never actually tells people about his plans he's often quite like guarded in what he says about his inner life which i think is also uh can can be kind of misconstrued almost as a like oh stoic man suffers in silence but i think is actually more testament to the way that he's guarding this inner life of his that he's not taking it flippantly and yet at the same time he manages to keep something to himself while also embracing the relationships of the friendships he makes in prison that you know that he's able to enter into communion even with people he doesn't like like the guards like he takes them very um genuinely on some level like he never doesn't see them like they they throw him in the hole it's you know in, in solitary confinement it's not that everything becomes okay but that he's still able to interact with them on a much more human level Yeah, and I think that, like, guarding of the inner life, and I guess, of his tunnel, is also important to say in that, I guess, in one way he protects his friends, Mm -hmm. because they don't know about it. Yeah. He also protects the tunnel, because what they don't know, they can't give away. Yeah. But you could also, like, ask, oh, is it a betrayal to his friends and fellow prisoners that he escapes and doesn't bring them with him? Mm. And, like, there's not an obvious way that he could have done that. Yeah. But I think the answer is still no to that as well, in that that's not what he's there to do. Like, Mm. he's... Because of his innocence, he's finding his way out. Yeah. And then leaving the system to do its job for the others yeah and try and help the like try and his help his friend red when he gets through on the system yeah and that like we said he's been giving them the tools to rehabilitate their yeah. lives while he was there um and offering them these chances to to build lives when when they're released yeah absolutely and that there is this sense of um yeah that i i, I don't want to become so paranoid i think you know you can see a lot of 
Christian content online, which is very afraid. And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, like very afraid of interacting with culture or interacting with anything that's kind of current or modern or, you know, whether it's music or films. And I mean, like we said, this is a secular movie. Like maybe this would be on some, you know, Christian list of like, no, don't watch this movie. There's bad language and violence. And it's, you know, it's made by presumably atheists. But that... There's, there is something to be said for being careful, like you were saying, about what you give your attention to, that it's very easy to sit, sit on our phones and have stuff presented to us that consumes our thoughts and consumes our attention. And that in that way, we can become very much prisoners of our own kind of social milieu or pop culture moments that we're never stepping beyond that. Absolutely. And I think there's also a way in which particularly social media can encourage us to overshare mm. and to like put every thought out there. Yeah. And that actually some of that is better treasured and guarded. Mm. Um, like particularly, I think, if you're in a kind of charismatic prayer circle or anything that's to do with like getting words from God or that kind of mm. that kind of type of prayer. Yeah. Often... I I feel like that's better kept to yourself and dwelt over and it doesn't have to be shared. Or even shared um, immediately. Or shared immediately. Mm. Um, that, Or just even the things that we're given to think about in prayer or or the thoughts we have on movies. Yeah. <laughs> um, that sometimes some things are better shared with a close friend and talked over that way. But it doesn't all have to be put out to the public and sometimes it doesn't have to be shared at all yeah i think that's really interesting i'd never connected the like prayer with the the kind of sharing on social media thing but i do think i grew up in more of those circles than you did (laughs) yeah but i do think that there's right like there is a reason why our lady treasured everything in her heart yeah that it's not it is obviously the role of uh, you know followers of christ to share the good news yeah that's not what i'm talking about yeah that's in the gospel as well but that, yeah, there is something about a level of privacy in your thoughts that is about encouraging a sense of stillness, a sense of silence, that is about, as we've been saying, building up your inner world, not in a selfish way, like we keep saying Andy then gives to other people, but that doesn't mean he gives everything that's inside him to everyone else in fact we don't actually have confirmation that he's innocent until about two-thirds of the way through the movie yeah that you know you're kind of rooting for him so you kind of assume he is as innocent as he says but he doesn't actually protest once he's kind of in his situation he introduces himself there's they say what are you in for and he says i'm innocent and they pretty much leave it from there it's not that he keeps harping on about it but that he he stated it he is who he is and then you have to kind of take him from there um and yeah that it's not a constant justification of self that he's more about looking inwards and like we've been saying fixing some of the problems within himself and then building up the things that he loves and sharing sharing this relationship with others and using the tools that he's been given from his love of studying whether it's, you know, rocks or whether it's, you know, he seems very well read. There's a great reference to uh, The Count of Monte Cristo in it, <laughs> which obviously, you know, another prison break story. Although I also just wanted to point out, I, I'm also very much reminded of the ending line of the, the Count of Monte Cristo, which is a phrase that is used throughout it, but it, it ends with, 
Live then and be happy, beloved children of my heart, and never forget that until the day God will deign to reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. And there's something very linked to what the Shawshank Redemption is doing. Obviously, it's it's drawing on great prison break stories <laughs> of uh, of literature as well. But yeah, that... That the fact that Shawshank ends with I hope, I hope, I hope, and then this sense of wait and hope. It's such an important repeated theme. Mm. Yeah. We have to talk about the get busy living or get busy dying quote. That's a or good point. Or at least quote it. Yeah, that's a good point because that's the one that I and my dad actually reference all the time. I can't believe I've almost forgotten it. Yeah, so there's also right before he finally breaks out of prison he has a final conversation with red and he says that it all boils down to a phrase which is get busy living or get busy dying and i think that is actually a genuinely has if since we've been talking about ballast to me that has been a ballast in my life that I, i i wouldn't want to take it nihilistically you can definitely focus on the get busy dying thing to me, what that says is that if you're not getting busy living, what you're doing is getting busy dying, you know, that you if you're not doing the former, you're doing the latter. And that doesn't mean that, um, you know, that doesn't mean suicide, although in, in the context of the film, it's like ramping up that maybe that's what he's thinking about. And so when, you know, there's that great scene when they discover his empty cell, which if we're going for Christ-like figures is very much the empty tomb. Um, you know, they, they, they know that there's something wrong. The guards come barging down to his cell and you think, oh my yeah. gosh. What They're yelling, I'm... you'd better be sick or dead in there. And yeah. you're, you are like, especially if you're watching, if you're watching it for the first time, like I was, yeah. you're wondering if you're going to find him hanging there. Yeah. Because we've already seen one man hanging. Yeah, exactly. So there's a real sense of, you know, that line is used in the movie to say that maybe he is thinking of dying. But I think it's also true to say that, you know, when you're not getting busy living, it's that culture of death that Pope Benedict often talked about, that there's a real sense in which you're investing in something that's detracting from your life if you're not focused on getting busy living. And that doesn't necessarily mean a hedonistic thing, although I will say, uh, as someone who's currently planning out my year and planning some of the things that I'm doing, I think there is a merit in in seizing the day. I'm often reminded of how nothing is guaranteed to us and our health isn't guaranteed, even like the money that we've been saving isn't guaranteed. Anything can happen. And that's not to say to be irresponsible or like we said, materialistic or flippant, but that if there are things that we want to do or places that we want to go or people that we want to see that... Yeah, most importantly. Yeah, that don't put that on... It's an Irish phrase. Don't put it on the long finger. Don't keep pushing it down the line. That get busy living. There is only now to live in and to invest in the relationships, to invest in, most importantly, our relationship with God. That all of this stuff is gathering momentum as whether you're getting busy living or or getting busy dying. Yeah, and I think the art, one of the articles we were reading about that also had a lovely Cheston quote, I won't read it now, but about courage and just the how courage is the balance of seeking to live by be, being willing to die. Mm. And I think there's that in the get busy living as well, yeah. that you're putting things at risk. And if you're not putting things at risk and you're not willing to kind of walk on that knife edge a bit more, mm. then things start to stagnate and wither and die. Yeah, I think he says something in order to save 
your life recklessly putting it in danger. Yeah. So, you know, to not just crouch down in a ball, but to fight your way out. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is uh, that kind of odd contradiction that, and it, it's so much what Jesus says. Anyone uh, who loves his life will lose it. Yeah. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will gain it. Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah. to me, that's so much um, what's being driven at here, which is that if you're too careful with yourself that you you don't want to risk anything that you do end up losing it you're smothering it you're killing the very thing that it is whereas you know Andy is all about taking the risk and taking the chance at at life and for us and and laying down and dying in it like we said it's the empty tomb he has to do this kind of enacted dying and rebirth yeah and yet also doing all of that in a really well planned and thought out way Mm. that isn't kind of like the reckless heedless charge of doing that without any thought of like what the next step is or the consequences of his actions Mm -hmm. um but taking that balance. Mm. Whereas I think maybe what you see with, like, take Red in the harmonica, that he's not willing to risk, say, the guards coming in and beating him for playing it. Yeah. Or be like being mocked for playing it. He's not willing to take that risk mm. and lets that part of him die. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I don't know. To me, it's always been a wake up call. Anytime I feel like I have been allowing my life to slip into uh, monotony or when I've passed up things that because I was too scared or too anxious to try and go for or when I think of the future you know knowing that that nothing is guaranteed to us that you have to really truly accept life as a gift and it is a balance. You do, You have to be responsible. You have to act responsibly. And yet you also have to push forward and embrace it as a gift and to delight in it as a gift and to not hoard it in such a way that you kind of make it too small. Yeah, it really comes down to that institutionalization as well. There's this discussion about the walls of the prison and how men come to rely on them Mm. and that they become institutionalized in that way red says these walls are funny first you hate them then you get used to them enough time passes so you get so you depend on them that's institutionalized and i think a little bit of what you're saying is that so that you depend on them Mm. like we start to depend on the things that have always been there, that they will always be there. Mm. As if they're these solid stone walls. Yeah. Um, And in that way, they can sometimes also be what's keeping us in. Yeah. um, As well as, like, being trapped into depending on them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting, he follows that up with saying, they send you here for life, and that's exactly what they take, the part that counts anyway. Yeah. So it's like, even when they get paroled and they get to leave, you know, they had a life sentence, and so their time in prison has taken their life and their ability to engage in life afterwards yeah absolutely um yeah it's it's beautiful i think it's a wonderful film you know we've quoted it in detail we've given you a lot of the plot points hopefully anyone who hasn't seen it it still feels like it's worth seeing um i don't think we've given all the plot No, there are definitely some that we've held back. Uh, And it's also just worth seeing for those plot points. And it's beautifully acted. Like I said, 
it, beautifully it, scripted, beautiful music. Mm-hmm. And the the cinematography is stunning. It's kind of to me, it's one of those ones that like now, you know, there's a lot of experimental stuff with cinematography, which can be amazing. This is shot relatively simply, but just done really, really well. And the sequence at the end when Red gets out of prison and then goes to a place where Andy has kind of hinted might have some information for him to help him get get out and, and, and find where Andy is. And it's so beautiful. Like, actually, Andy references the field that he sends them to as being like something from a Robert Frost poem. And I think that's so telling that, like, that end sequence is just... It's honestly one of the most transportive sequences in film. And I think it's worth watching on its own, but it is worth it even more when you've had the build-up of like the two hours of film before that. And as Red kind of he sits under a tree and reads a letter. And, you know, my dad and I, we happened to turn on to the Shawshank Redemption just at this end point over Christmas. It was on the TV and we finished watching something else and up pops this like last 20 minutes. But my dad could recite it like for beat for beat, even there's a bit where Red like looks around him and like my dad knew exactly when that was coming. But it is it to me, those sequences are a ballast in and of themselves. They give me hope, they give me um, a sense of beauty and transformation that actually equips me to deal with some of the the things that I struggled with in my life. And I just think it's a really worthy movie because of that. And we're going to finish with a quote from that letter, which is, Remember Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you and finds you well. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So I think that's our our recording for today. We have our last question, which is, Phoebe, what have you been enjoying at the moment? Now, the question here is, am I allowed to say all of the movies we've been watching? Sure, that's fine. <laughs> we've been watching some great movies recently, uh, some of which we'd seen before, uh, most of which we hadn't. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed Calamity Jane. Mm-hmm. I'll pick yeah. that one out as a highlight. Yeah. I'll also say the same, but I'll also expand it slightly. We're very lucky in Dublin. We have this great cinema called the Stella Cinema, which is very old worldy and like big red leather armchairs and things like that. And they, if you order food, they bring it to a little table while you're you're watching the movie. Um, so we went to that yesterday to go see. They were showing an afternoon showing of to to catch a thief by Alfred Hitchcock with Grace Kelly and Cary Grant and. I loved the film, but I also just loved the whole experience of going. It was great. Uh, we had a great time. The, it's, you know, it's a bit more on the pricey side, although I do find, I I really like the cinema, but I do find cinema tickets in general very pricey. And so in some ways it's not, maybe not that much more pricey than a regular cinema. Surprisingly, the food is pretty reasonable. Yeah. So if anyone's in Dublin, I'd recommend checking it out. And I think, you know, they show mainly, they, they, they only have one screen, so they can only show a certain number of the kind of recently coming out films. Uh, but they do show the kind of big name films that are coming out. But I personally love getting to see some of the older films um, as well. So yeah, it's great for either of those. Yeah, it's so lovely to kind of re-enter that experience from when they might have been first coming out. Yeah, it was great. Uh, yeah, and I think that's it, uh, other than our usual, to follow us on Instagram at Risking Enchantment Podcast and to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Seeking Watson. 
And you can sign up to our newsletter, which is on rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast. And you can just sign up to get an email whenever our uh, next episode comes out. And otherwise, we should be with you again in two weeks time. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.